This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how, through craft, that idea is made manifest. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Anahid Nirsesian, author of the nonfiction book Keats Odes, A Lover's Discourse. Great poem is new in some sense every time you read it. And so in that sense, it's really hard to come to any sort of closure with a, with a great poem. You'll always find something new in it. It'll always move you or injure you in a new way. We'll be back with Anahid Nersessian after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, But there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones, 
from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview. Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My guest today is Anahid Nirsessian, author of the nonfiction books The Calamity Form on Poetry and Social Life and Utopia Limited, Romanticism and Adjustment. She is the co-editor of the Thinking Literature series and is an associate professor of English at UCLA. Her new book, Keats's Odes, A Lover's Discourse, is part essay, part criticism of Keats's great odes, which includes his odes to a nightingale, Grecian urn, indolence, melancholy, psyche, and autumn. Nersesian illuminates why these poems still have so much to say while paralleling them with meditations on her own life. The book emerged from her lifelong attachment to Keats's poetry, which she first read when she was 12 years old. We began with me asking Anahid Nersesian this question. I'm just kind of curious about your fascination with Keats, because he is not necessarily an easy poet to read. Yeah, that's so funny. I think that's true. I think that's a true thing to say and believe about Keats. At the same time, I noticed with my undergraduates, I, you know, I teach at a college level, I teach at UCLA. Um, I noticed with my undergraduates that they respond to Keats as though he's a much more accessible poet than he is. And I think that that's because something in the language and in the emotion of the poetry calls out to them, even if they don't necessarily understand it at the level of the line. And that's true of my relationship to Keats as well. You know, I don't necessarily always understand what Keats is doing at the level of the line, but something in the poetry and in the, you know, again, the kind of emotional power that is baked into every word and every punctuation mark in Keats just activates me, you know, and just um, excites my imagination and, you know, as a reader and also as a critic. So I think that you're right, that he is a really difficult poet, but on the other hand, an incredibly appealing one. And you talked about this a little in the book, but what drew you to Keats? Because, I mean, you wrote this whole book about him, about his odes, and I think you've been studying him for a long time. Yeah, for a really long time. I mean, I've been studying him as an academic, I guess, you know, maybe you could say since I was in college, but I've been reading Keats for a much longer time. I've been reading Keats since I was about 12. And I first came 
to the poetry actually through the letters, which I think is true for a lot of people when it comes to Keats, because Keats is as famous for his letters as he is for his poems, and in particular for his love letters to a woman named Fanny Braun, who for a time was his next door neighbor. I mean, actually, it's even more intimate than that. They actually shared, um, you know, two halves of the same house. And I found these letters in a book of love poems, even though they're, they're letters, they're not poems. I found these letters in a book of love poems that my dad had in his office, and I just thought they were so beautiful and so sexy, and, and everything about them kind of blew my mind. And so I thought, well, who is this guy, John Keats? I mean, I've never heard of John Keats. And so got really interested and you know, eventually went to the library and took out some um, books, not just by Keats, but also about Keats. And really, I mean, I I think the way to put it is I fell in love with Keats, both as a person and as a poet. And so the book comes out of that. It comes out of this very, very long relationship with this figure, who obviously is somebody I, I never have met and never will meet, but feel incredibly close to. I'm kind of amazed that at 12 years old, you got it. Well, I, I don't think I did get it, though. You know, I think like, I mean, when you find out this, when you find out Keats's story, particularly the story of his relationship with Fanny Braun, it's hard not to become emotionally involved in it. You know, he had an incredibly tragic life. He died when he was 25. He was never famous in his own lifetime. In fact, his poetry was kind of universally panned. And he had a very traumatic childhood as well, but nonetheless had sort of put together this life for himself in which he was by some measure very happy and then had met this woman and fallen in love with her. And even though there were all sorts of barriers to them actually being able to be together, it nonetheless seemed like it would work out eventually. And then he got tuberculosis and and died within a couple of years of being sick. So once you hear that, you know, I mean, it's so tragic and it's so, um, you know, moving and it's so arresting as a, as a story that I don't think I really understood the poetry until much later. But I think that I understood some aspect of Keats's existence. And I think I, you know, plugged into, again, the kind of the sort of tragedy or the, the melancholy of the story first before I understood the literature so basically what you do in this book, Keats Odes, uh, A Lover's Discourse, is you take six of his odes and you 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 don't dissect them. It's, it's not like an English essay about what each line means, but you're talking more about the general themes, the circumstances of his life and those those elements of each ode and also in some cases bringing in your own life experience to those essays. And you say in the introduction that this book is a love story about things that cannot be gotten over. And I wanted to ask you about that idea of that you can't get over things you can't get over and how poetry can feed or nurse that in some way. Yeah, that's such a beautiful question. I think, you know, on the most basic level, everybody knows that it's really hard to get over love. It's one of those things that, you know, really sticks in your craw and, um, you know, makes your life difficult and can make your life difficult long after the relationship, you know, um, in question has, has come to an end. So that's just something I think we've all experienced. I think it's really lovely to think about that in terms of our relationship to poetry and, or in terms of my relationship to poetry, 
a poem and a, and a great poem, you know, like Keats's Odes are all great poems. A great poem is new in some sense every time you read it. And so in that sense, it's really hard to come to any sort of closure with a, with a great poem. You'll always find something new in it. It'll always move you or injure you in a new way. And so every time you return to the page, there's a kind of, you know, a, a reopening of, of the wound, if you like, of the poetry that that has really, you know, come to define our lives. If you have that kind of relationship with poetry, which not everybody does, but some people have it with novels or some people have it with albums or some people have it with a particular painting. I think everybody has something that serves them in that way. And so for me, that's, you know, poetry, Keats's poetry. And then as you sort of suggested, you know, also these relationships that we enter into with other people, you know, real people, not just people that exist within the pages of books, but people that come into our lives and affect us in a certain way and then maybe stay in our lives or leave or we leave or for whatever reason, there is a change that's happened to us. And one of the ways that we register those changes is to write about them. And so that's what I did in this book or what I tried to do. And one of the concepts that you write about in here is this concept of negative capability. And I'm wondering if you can explain that. Yeah. So negative capability is this phrase that Keats uses in one of his letters to, um, you know, one of his correspondents in a very, very offhand way. So one of the things as a side note that makes Keats's letters so exciting and compelling is they have all these fantastic literary critical observations in them. So even though Keats was a poet, he actually would have made a fantastic literary critic, which is not something that he ever pursued professionally, although he kind of thought about it late, late in life, although it's sort of silly to talk about somebody being late in their life when they're 25. But uh, he says this thing about negative capability in a very throwaway fashion. And then ever since then, Keats scholars have really glommed onto it as defining his poetic practice in some way. And from, you know, the, the best we can sort of say about negative capabilities, it seems to be a particularly radical form of empathy. So if you are negatively capable, says Keats, you are, you are able to enter into the thoughts and feelings and sensations of anything. So not just other people, but also cats, also lamps. You know, also trees. It's it's a way of dissolving yourself, almost without meaning to, um, of dissolving yourself and entering fully into the consciousness, the embodied consciousness of another entity. And then, in in Keats's case, you write from that position. So people often describe Keats's poetry as being incredibly sensual, and that's true. And I think that some of the reason for that is that he very much could identify with what it would be like to have a different kind of body or have a different kind of mind or have a different kind of existence. And then he, you know, again, sort of wrote from that position. And his reviewers, though, thought that that sensuality, at least some of them, that he was unhealthy, unclean, or like a sexual mm -hmm. deviant. So he was fighting against that, maybe fighting in his own while he was still alive. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and you know, it's funny, it is true 
those reviewers are not totally wrong. <laughs> so it, even, even though, you know, I love Keats and they hate Keats, those contemporary reviewers, people who were reading and writing about Keats's poetry in the 18-teens would come back again and again to this notion that the poetry was licentious, that it was dirty, that it was, you know, not for, um, you know, not for innocent eyes. And when you read Keats's poetry, nothing in there is sexually explicit, but the language is very, very sexy. And it's hard to sometimes pinpoint why that is. You know, I mean, on the one hand, Keats will often describe um, people's bodies, especially women's bodies, in a way that is is very predictably sensual. You know, so he'll talk about, you know, the female form in, in ways that are totally familiar to us. But I actually think that the so-called licentiousness of Keats's poetry has much more to do with this excess and abundance of language that he pours into every line. And so you feel as though you're encountering something that's kind of obscene, even though you're really not, but it feels that way. You know, we feel like we should be blushing when we read Keats. And so that's what those reviewers were responding to for sure. What I get out of it, and, you know, when I was in college and I was an English major, the first thing I ever read by him was Ode to a Nightingale, which is the first Mm. poem that you share and write about in your book. And it has always stuck with me, I'm afraid to say how many decades later, um, that poem, because what I walked away with, and I'm sure that I needed my English teacher to help me interpret all this was this sense from that poem was um, the absolute sheer bliss of being alive, of being a human, of being a sensual body to be able to love and taste and feel and hear the songs of the, of the birds and feel your own feelings right alongside inseparable from our own obliteration from our death that that the moment that we feel the most alive is actually the moment that we feel that we're about to lose everything and this duality of almost like there's some element that maybe is a tiny bit buddhist of like that we have to unattach from all of it and also like hedonistic at the same time so that was my introduction to Keats. I, I just want to ask you if you feel like that's accurate and what you would say about that. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And, you know, it's it's also, I should say, a lot of people have found uh, certain kinds of Buddhist sensibilities in Keats because he is so interested in the negative and he's so interested in the notion of emptying out the self. And you're totally right. I mean, there's that line in Ode to Nightingale when when he says, or the poet says, or, you know, the poem says, now more than ever seems it rich to die. This moment at which you're feeling the most intensely embodied sensations that you've ever felt, you know, you're smelling the air and you're feeling the flowers under your feet and everything just seems unbelievably heightened. And yes, as you say, you know, there's a sense of, man, it's incredible to be alive. It's incredible to have a body. It's incredible to be in the world. How thrilling. And yet this moment tips over into a kind of pain. And that's true. You know, we know that from from real life, you know, sometimes really, really intense pleasure borders on on pain. And then, of course, there are also people who derive intense pleasure from pain as well. And so Keats's poetry walks absolutely on that knife edge between feeling filled completely up and being emptied completely out. And the the poetry, you know, often vacillates between those two states or tries to register them at the same time. And do you feel those themes 
that kind of you you write absorption and dissolution are mm. present throughout all of his poetry, whether he's writing about a nightingale or the psyche, or do you think that's unique to certain of his poems? Maybe the thing to say is it's unique to the best of Keats's poems. <laughs> because, you know, again, Keats actually has like a lot of bad poems. I mean, I'll be the first to admit that, especially some of his earlier poems are like sort of notoriously bad. And he doesn't, you know, one of the things that's remarkable, remarkable about the Great Odes, all of which were written in 1819. I mean, that's worth saying, you know, it's like six of the most famous poems, some of the most famous poems in the English language were all written in, in one year, basically back to back to back. And nothing that Keats had written before the Great Odes really gave any indication that he was about to, you know, blow the top off his own artistry in the way that he ended up doing. So the earlier stuff, maybe not so much absorption and dissolution, maybe more bells and whistles and, you know, bad metaphors. But when he gets to the Odes, he seems to have figured out the truth of the statement that he makes in a letter to Fanny Braun, which is, you know, he says to her, um, that when he's with her, when he thinks about her, he has a feeling as though he's dissolving because she's absorbed him. And so I think that partly through that relationship and then also just partly because of his own sensibility, he was able in the odes to translate that feeling into an, an aesthetic, you know, and able to write it in such a way that you could appreciate it yourself as a reader and then you could begin to appreciate it beyond the confines of the poem. You could begin to appreciate it in, in life. But as you said about, you know, the, the Ode to a Nightingale is sometimes that feeling of absorption and dissolution is wildly pleasurable and sometimes it's quite terrifying. So you, you chose six odes in this book. Um, why did you choose these six? So this, this is not really my doing. These are called by Keith scholars, the great odes. So they're kind of a package deal. And all of them have the word ode in the title, except for the last one, which is called Two Autumn. But yeah, they, they come in a, in a tidy little package. And so I felt as though I had to write about all of them. <laughs> and I also felt like I should write about them more or less in the order that Keats wrote them in, although nobody's quite sure um, exactly what order the poems were written in, but they, they're a package deal. You can't you can't separate them out from one another. And some people think that they're connected in a way that they're actually meant to be read in sequence. I don't believe that, although I think you know persuasive arguments can be made to that effect. But yeah, you know, I had I had to take them all. You can't eat just one. It's like the Costco version of Keats. If you want to buy Keats, yes. you gotta got all six. Yes, exactly. At a, at a discount, but you do have to get all six. <laughs> you know, an ode is a very classic form of poetry, but I wonder if there's anything that you want to describe to the listeners about what an ode is or what it means to you. Um, you do write that Keats's odes describe the soul's encounter with something hard. Um, if you want to elaborate or share more about that. Yeah, so the classical definition of an ode is really straightforward. An ode is just a poem of praise. So it's usually directed or, you know, um, directed to someone. Sometimes the object of praise is, is um, addressed very, very directly, sometimes more obscurely. But the ode is meant to praise or celebrate something. That's its most 
straightforward definition. And when you look at Keats's odes, that actually is more or less true about them too. You know, the ode to a nightingale that he praises the song of the nightingale, to autumn addresses the beauty of the season. So in that sense, they're straightforward. Once you really begin to dive into them though and go below the generic surface of the ode as a poem of praise, you begin to see that in, in certain ways, the object is something of a red herring. So, okay, I'm not really talking about this bird. I'm talking about what it is to be alive and what it is to feel on the edge of life, life and death. Um, I'm not really talking about a Grecian urn. I'm talking about the history of the representation of sexual violence. So I'm not really talking about autumn. I'm talking about political crisis. So um, because they all have these sort of covert meanings or these, you know, multiple significances that are threaded through these lines, you start to realize that really what's going on in the ode is not so much an act of praise, but an act of thinking through something and an act of trying to identify what it is that we feel in proximity to life and death, in proximity to sexual violence, in proximity to political crisis. And this actually goes back to the first thing you said that, you you know, there's a way in which the poem itself is never quite finished. And so, yeah, they're never quite finished because they are acts of thinking and they're acts of thinking about very, very difficult things that we can always have new revelations about. So they're odes, you know, but they're a lot more than that, too. Do you have a favorite line from any of these? Like if you if you were oh at gunpoint and in a dark alley in L.A. that you'd have to come up with? a really amazing experience of being held at gunpoint if somebody said, you know, give me your key, give me your best Keith line. Um, God, you know, I mean, there's the really obvious ones that are just so beautiful, like now more than ever seems it rich to die. You know, I think that's just killer. And that's why people invoke that line all the time. I am not a fan of the line, beauty is truth, truth, beauty. It's another very, very famous line. You just think God, people would give their, you know, like, eye teeth to have come up with a line like that. For me, my favorite of Keats's odes is the ode to Psyche. And it's not that there's a particular line of that poem that I love so much. I mean, the, the final line to let the warm love in is incredibly stunning, you know, but for me, it's just the actual construction of the poem is, is so moving and you kind of have to take it as a whole because what it describes, particularly in the first stanza, is these two lovers, Cupid and Psyche, lying next to one another, and they're forming a kind of parenthesis. And the ode itself describes a parenthesis in their lovemaking. So the suggestion is that they've, you know, been having sex, and now they're taking a break, they're resting, and then soon, you know, they will outnumber all their previous kisses. But this is the break. This is the quiet moment where they're both sleeping next to each other, side by side. And so when you read the poem, you realize that that parenthesis or that breath or that space or that pause is actually, um, appears almost in every line. Every line has a kind of hiccup in it. And so the motion of the poem and the way that the words are actually put together on the page mimics exactly what's being described, which is these two lovers and this sort of permanent, um, you know, hiatus where that they're frozen in together. And so to me, just the, the performance of the poem, I think is just so unbelievable. So it's not a particular line, but the whole experience of that, that ode for me is as good as it gets. Yeah. And again, that last line is to let the warm love in. 
and yeah. and as you're writing about this, you know, you're talking about these lovers and they're, they're embodied. Um, they're also plural. They, in some ways they are spoken of as one and they are divine and they are also bodies. And you also write about this, which, um, was new to me, but I'm no Keats expert was, uh, kind of the idea of this as an ecological poem. Mm-hmm. Can you share about yeah. that? Sure. So this is something I've been thinking about for a long time. And I actually um, talked ex- about the poem exactly in these terms in my first academic book and in my second academic book. And then in this book, which is not written for academics, but is written for a general audience. So it's something I'm clearly obsessed with. And maybe it's out of my system at last, but I don't know. In the poem, Keats asks, you know, essentially to be made into a purely biodegradable entity. So he imagines and wishes for his brain to turn into a trellis, you know, to turn into something that roses grow on, that that flowers grow on. And I've always thought about this as a wish to disappear, which is very prevalent in all of Keats's poetry. You know, he's always imagining himself disappearing. It goes back to that idea of negative capability. He wants to dissolve. He wants to be absorbed. But here, I think there is a particularly ecological twist to that desire to to disappear, to vanish, because the poem has lots of negative things to say about human civilization. So it's very critical of organized religion. It's very critical of the building of monuments. It's very critical of certain kinds of social conventions, particularly those around sexuality. Um, And then it works itself up to imagining a world in which civilization is in the past tense. And now we have been liberated from the pressure, the historical pressure, if you like, to make our mark on the world. We can just be, we can just be for a little bit. This actually, again, you know, what you were saying earlier about the certain Buddhist tendencies and teeth comes out here too. Instead of desiring to make a mark on the world, maybe we could decide just to live these fragile, short, precious lives and then to be gone. And to have that as an aspiration is, is I think, the, the ultimate dream of that poem. Can I tell you my favorite line? Yes. I should have asked. How rude. No, no, no. My favorite line is near the one that you, that is not, doesn't really jazz you that much, but it's, I have been half in love with easeful death. Oh my God. It brings tears to my eyes when I read it. I think because, um, there's like some ambivalence there, like half in love, but it's also just like this startling, um, almost like a revelation that people don't expect to hear because of our fear of death, probably even back, you know, yeah. in the, in the 18-teens when he was writing to be, oh, yeah. to, it's like, it's like letting us in on this great secret that is kind of shocking and yet he's mm. not fully committed and nor is death always easeful. Um, but I, yeah. I, I also wanted yeah. to know what you know about this line. 
Yeah, well, I mean, and Keats knew very well that death was not easeful. It's the one thing we haven't talked about is that Keats trained as a doctor. He was not going to be a poet. And in fact, his childhood friends, when they found out that he had become a poet or were asked about Keats after he died and was, was accruing a kind of posthumous fame, they all said, oh, yeah, nobody thought that guy was going to be a poet. We all thought he was going to join the army or something because he was really rough and tumble. And, you know, um, and he had he had gotten an apothecary's license and trained as a surgeon. You know, all of this just means in our modern parlance that he was training to be a doctor and gave it up kind of abruptly. He was actually quite a success medical student. He was chosen for a very plum position by the top surgeon at the hospital where he was training and um, gave it all up. But so as part of his apprenticeship, Keats had worked in a hospital that was reserved for um, so-called incurable patients, and in particular, incurable patients who were poor and so could not be, uh, could not afford to be cared for at home. So, you know, essentially what we would call kind of public hospital, although um, it was not it was not a public hospital, it was sponsored by wealthy patrons. But so Keats saw some rough stuff. You know, he saw saw and assisted in amputations. He saw people dying of cancer. And most um, pertinently, he saw people dying of tuberculosis, including his brother, Tom, who Keats nursed. Uh, right up until the moment of his death. And a lot of people believe that that's probably how Keats contracted tuberculosis himself, was nursing his brother. And he writes about Tom's death that at the very end, it was peaceful, but up until the very end, it had been quite gruesome and quite difficult, as death often is. Uh, as you said, death is not always easeful. So it's a, it's kind of if we think about the line half in love with easeful death, one of the things that love does is it makes us, you know, in a way oblivious to the dangers of the thing that we love or the person that we love or, you know, the life that we love. And so you could think about easeful death as a fantasy of what death is. Oh, I'm sure it's easeful. I'm sure it's soft. I'm sure it's lovely, knowing full well that it's probably not. I mean, it's also worth thinking about what an incredibly Keatsian adjective that is, useful, because it's death who is being, or that is being described as full of ease, but it's the person who dies that, at least in this understanding of death, feels that ease. So the ease seems to actually exist somewhere between death and the person who dies. You know, it's as though they're kind of blending together. It's a shared adjective in a way. And that's very, that's classic, classically Keatsian. It's interesting, too, with this poetry, when I was talking to you a little bit at the beginning about it's hard to read because there's so many references to classical literature and cultural references of the time or the past. And I think your essay about Ode to a Grecian Urn, I learned the most about that poem that I just wasn't really aware of. And what it was really about and the origin of the 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 language the romantic period where that term came from mm. so i'm wondering if you could talk about ode to a grecian urn maybe like on the surface what it might appear to be and then what you've learned through your studies yeah, so Ode on a Grecian Urn is probably Keats's most famous poem. It ends with the very, very famous lines, beauty is truth, truth, beauty. And what it describes is an urn and more specifically a scene that's painted on this urn of 
a bunch of people, presumably in, in ancient Greece, you know, somewhere in the ancient world, going to a sacrifice. So it's some kind of religious festival. And so some people are going to a sacrifice and they're, you know, leading um, a cow, you know, sort of through their village. And the other thing that you see on the urn, and it's pro- it, it's probably part of the same festivities, is um, women being chased by men. And the women are described specifically as maidens loath. And the word loath means unwilling, but it's even stronger than that. You know, it means sort of full of hatred for whatever it is that is uh, chasing you or trying to make you do something you don't want. So people have always understood, you know, Keats scholars have always understood that what is depicted on the urn is, uh, at least in part, a scene of sexual violence. So these women are being chased by these men. Um, There's also a woman who is you know, sort of frozen and described as being frozen in time as she runs from the the youth, the male youth who is trying to catch her. And so people have always understood that what's on the urn is a scene of sexual violence. And so the question is, how do you get from that to the lines that conclude the poem? Beauty is truth, truth, beauty, that is all you know on earth and all you need to know. There are thousands of interpretations of these lines and one really straightforward interpretation of it would or of them and of the poem would be you know lots of bad stuff happens you know women get raped you know cows get killed right lots of bad stuff happens in life but human beings make art out of that bad stuff and the art that they make is beautiful and that's the truth of human experience the truth of human experience is not all the bad stuff that goes down, but the redemption of that bad stuff through its representation, through its elevation into art. That that that's the kind of like really sort of you know straightforward back of the textbook answer about the poem. My reading of the poem is you know pretty different. I actually think that the poem is spoken not by a voice who that ultimately belongs to Keats. I think that the speaker of the poem is a character of sorts. I think it's a character who we're not supposed to trust and we're not supposed to listen to. And I think that that message that is delivered at the end of the poem is actually supposed to fall flat, even if it sounds good. And it does sound good. I mean, those are beautiful, beautiful lines with all of these, the perfect symmetry, beauty is truth, truth, beauty. That is all you know on earth and all you need to know. It almost sounds like a slogan. It's very pat. It's very uh, accessible. It is, you know, something that you can remember easily. And that's part of the trick of the poem, because actually, I think we're not meant to believe that at all. We're actually not meant to believe that the bad stuff that happens in life or has happened through the course of human history is in any way redeemed or made better by being turned into art. And in fact, what we have to understand when we encounter art, particularly art that represents human suffering, in this case, art that represents uh, sexual violence, we have to understand that there is no way to say, well, it turned out okay because now we have this beautiful urn, you know, we actually have to dwell in the very, very, very difficult and uncomfortable position of knowing that one of the things art does is aestheticize or beautify or prettify incredible pain. And that's a very, very hard thing to recognize. 
you know, it's a very hard thing to recognize if you're somebody that loves art. It's a very hard thing to recognize if you're somebody that makes art. And so that's my that's my reading of the poem. So I actually think that the the moral, if you like, at the end of the poem is not Pat. I actually think it's a kind of trap. And that if you read it and you think, oh, yeah, that's true, then you're as bad as the speaker of the poem. You're as bad as somebody who, um, you know, looks at art and forgets the pain that it has come out of. If you got to have dinner with Keats, would you have like, do you have one question that you've always really wanted to know and just want his answer on? Yes, totally. So when, uh, so all or not all, but many, many, many of Keats's letters to Fanny Braun survive. None of her letters to him survive. With the exception, or so we think, with the exception of the letters of hers that were buried with him. Keats was buried in the Protestant cemetery in Rome. Now, those letters that were buried with Keats, Fanny Braun's letters to Keats, are unopened. Because when he was dying, Keats refused to open any of the letters that his his lover sent him. He found it too painful, or he thought it would be too painful. So our only chance to know how Fanny Braun wrote to Keats, how she spoke to him, the kinds of things that she would say um, are in that grave in the Protestant cemetery in Rome. So I think the question would be something, you know, like, can we please see those letters? Can we please, you know, open up your grave and open up those letters? Because I'm dying to know what is what Fanny Braun said to Keats. You know, we know everything that you said to her, but we don't know what she said to you. So that I think that's the question. When I read that in one of your essays, I was thinking, well, why don't they just dig it up? But of course, there's so many issues. I mean, I guess there are. (laughs) Are there debates in the Keats world? No, maybe I don't. I know I'm not the only person who can be bothered by this, but I guess people think it's really beautiful, you know, that these unopened letters are underneath the earth. I, I mean, I don't think it's beautiful. I think it's, unbelievably frustrating (laughs) so yeah that would be my question can we please open your grave can you talk a little bit about the term the romantic period because you talk about that just just how it came about I had no idea which is related to that sexual violence Mm -hmm. it's the funniest thing you know there's a letter that um the poet Lord Byron wrote to uh the poet Goethe both romantic poets English romantic poet, German romantic poet, kind of late, you know, later in the romantic period, I think it's in the 1820s and Byron says to Goethe, so what do you think about this new term romantic? You know, I don't think it makes any sense. And it is true that the term romanticism, which has come to cover, let's say about a 50 year period of literary history in Europe, especially in um, Britain and then especially in Germany and then to some degree in France, Um, The term romanticism is like very, very unwieldy and strange. And the origin of the term, as far as anyone can see, comes from the fact that during the 18th century, the middle of the 18th century, right up until the time of the French Revolution in the 1790s, there was a new revival of interest in medieval culture and medieval literature, and particularly in a kind of medieval literature called the romance. So 
very, very famous, um, you know, medieval work of literature called the uh, Roman de la Rose. Um, you know, um, slightly later, um, you know, now we're talking about the Renaissance, you know, uh, Edmund Spencer's very famous poem, The Fairy Queen, is also a romance. So there's suddenly a big revival of interest in these kinds of stories, and they're all exactly what you would imagine. You know, they're kind of like, um, I hesitate to say like medieval times, you know, <laughs> like knights on quests, rescuing ladies. There's sometimes evil wizards and monsters and all this kind of stuff. So in the later half of the 18th century in, in Britain, there's a revival of interest in this kind of writing. And a guy named Richard Hurd, who is a literary critic, wrote a book about romances and, and it's sort of about the history of the novel in which he says that the reason all these medieval writers were so interested in stories of knights going off to rescue ladies from you know various kinds of harm is because the Middle Ages, as we know, were very, very dangerous. And says this guy, Richard Hurd, they were very dangerous for women. And he says in his book, you know, women must have been subjected to sexual violence all the time. And it doesn't seem to occur to her that that is true, not just in the Middle Ages, but he says in the Middle Ages, women were subjected to sexual violence all the time, or they were vulnerable to sexual violence all the time. So in these stories of knights going out to rescue ladies, there's a sort of compensatory gesture. If we can't protect women in real life, we can at least protect them in fiction. So what's very strange about the term romanticism is that it is grounded in a fantasy about life in a world centuries and centuries old in which women were especially vulnerable or supposed to be especially vulnerable. And that's not what we think of when we think of romanticism, but in the 18th and 19th centuries, those associations actually would have been very much at the forefront of, of people's minds. So, you know, with that um, idea of what where the, the term romantic came from and with our discussion about Ode to a Grecian Urn and, and even the psyche and, and the general maybe, you know, desire between to have everything and be hedonistic and then obliteration in Ode to Melancholy, you write, you're writing about um, melancholy, what it is. And you say, in response to some of the things that Keats said, that we get something out of suffering. Yeah. Um, so uh, one of the best accounts of melancholy, which we think of as a kind of generalized sadness, but actually has more technical meaning. Uh, one of the best accounts of melancholy comes from Sigmund Freud. And Sigmund Freud says, you know, the thing about melancholy, the thing about people who are sad all the time is they must get something out of it because nobody does anything that they don't really, really, really enjoy on some level if they're not under actual compulsion, you know? So if you're not really being compelled to suffer, you know, if you're not uh, incarcerated, you know, if you're not, to, to use your earlier example, being held at gunpoint, you know, if you're not, if you have a, if you're in a situation where you have a certain amount of free will, but you choose to be unhappy, or it looks like you're choosing to be unhappy, you must be getting some kind of gratification out of it. And so Freud, um, elsewhere, will call this the, the sort of um, economic problem of masochism, right? So like, why is it that people enjoy pain, right? Like, what are they getting out of it? What are they deriving from it? 
And so melancholy is a pervasive temperament in all of Keats's poetry. And it, it goes back in some sense to that notion of the most intensely pleasurable things verging on pain and um, Keats's poetry being a, a ongoing exploration of that phenomenon. So Keats really wants to know, you know, what do we get? What do we get from suffering? Well, one of the things we get from it is poetic pleasure. One of the things we get from it is aesthetic beauty, because suffering can be quite picturesque. You know, some of the greatest works of art are about, as we saw in Grecian art, some of the greatest works of art are about very terrible things happening, or, you know, maybe not so terrible, but just kind of um, relatably sad, you know, like the end of love or something like that, you know. So, um so, yeah, I think that the whole idea of an ode to melancholy should be a contradiction in terms. Why would you want to praise sadness? Why would you want to praise depression? And and Keith, you know, kind of, you know, thinks about that and, and ends up coming up with, with pretty much the same answer. Well, you know, it, it's pretty picturesque. It's pretty appealing. It has its special delights. Can you read something that influenced you as a writer that was written by someone else? Yes, absolutely. And it's so funny, you know, I didn't know that we were going to talk so much about bodies today. <laughs> um, but the the thing that I would say, and, and I can say more about like why this author and, and why this piece of writing in a second, but the, the thing that really influenced me in the book and that continues to influence me so much is um, the book uh, Calamities by Renee Gladman, who is a writer that I just adore. And Calamities came out in 2016. And if uh, people don't know the book, almost all of its sections begin with the phrase, I began the day. So each, um, they're not really chapters, but yeah, like each um Every couple of pages, you get a story of some kind that begins, I began the day. And um, this is one that I just think is, is remarkable. And so I'll read it. I began the day trying to say the word body as many times as I could for myself and for everyone in this room. We were in a time where the body was important to a lot of people, and it was important to me. I wanted to exchange the word with all my correspondents. I wanted to say body to them. How is your body or writing through the body or how the body activates objects in the room? I hoped to say body and see a change come over your face inside your body, the edge of the body, your body split. I split you. I hoped to reach a point in speaking where when it was time to say body, I could go silent instead. I'd pause and everyone in the room would sound the word within themselves. I'd go, every time you put a hole in the, and demure, lower my head like a 40-watt bulb, look solemn, or would say, we all carry something in our, it could also be plural, and the collective internal silent hum would overwhelm my senses. This would be real communication, something you started in your would finish in mine. So the thing I want to say about Renee Gladman is I went to a sort of, I think it was billed as a symposium. It was really a celebration of a book um, called The Hundreds, which was written by Kathleen Stewart and Lauren Berlant, who was my advisor in graduate school. And Lauren died um, at the very beginning of the summer. And Lauren and, and Katie Stewart, through this 
um, you know, kind of party for their book, which was coming out. And the way that the, the party or the symposium worked was sometimes people presented things they had written, and then some people actually did writing workshops. And one of the people who came and did a writing workshop was Renee Gladman. And uh, what Renee had us do was listen to a piece of music, in this case, um, John Coltrane's Olay, which is one of my favorite pieces of music ever, and write about the music without using any language that referred specifically to it as a piece of music. So you couldn't talk about rhythm, you couldn't talk about sound, you couldn't talk about what instruments were being used. You had to find a language that was not specific to the medium that you were encountering, right? So that is incredibly difficult. I mean, even just describing it is incredibly difficult. And that experience, the experience of that writing, the experience of doing that workshop completely changed my writing practice. You know, it made me understand that just in the same way as, you know, we, we often say like, oh, we only use 10% of our brains or 20% of our brains. I don't know what it is. We only use a small percentage of our brains. We only engage with artworks in a very, very, very narrow way. We, we, you know, experience music as music. When we read a poem, we think about the words. When we watch a movie, you know, we think about the story or whatever, you know. But doing this, writing about one medium without any of the language that were, you know, specific to that medium or that we're used to describing that medium and really, really changed how I write about poetry. And you know, I, I'm a person that is already very interested in sound and very interested in the way that certain kinds of sonic pressures, sonic and, and metrical pressures emerge and dissipate in the poem. But it helped me suddenly see poetry in, you know, like a whole new dimension, you know, not just as an assemblage of words, not like I really just thought that way before, but it, it completely blew me open. And um, I had already read Calamities. It wasn't the first time I, I had read that book, but I just thought that it was um, that this whole discussion about the body and how um, the, you know, like how remarkable would it be if we didn't actually ever use the word body, but we all knew that we were using it. And so I could begin to have a thought and you could finish it in your, in yourself, in your body. That to me is very, very key. So I love the way that Renee writes. I love that it is, at once very, very cerebral and very immediate. I, I find something really comforting about her writing, even though it's challenging, you know, it's challenging prose and, and people talk about Renee Gladman as an experimental writer. I think that's true. But to me, it always feels, there, there's something about it that feels very recognizable or that feels, you know, like like home to me. You know, I think I feel so comfortable in the presence of this person's mind and so excited in the, in you know, um, in the presence of this person's mind. So that's what I would, that's what I would say is Renee Gladman all the way. <laughs> Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. The thing that I, I there's a, a passage in the book that I re, that wrote, I don't even know how many times, like, I, would, <laughs> you know, I mean, I probably rewrote or tweaked it up to 50 times. That's what I would, that's what I would say. And sometimes I would be doing a full scale rewrite. Sometimes I would be lying in, in bed trying to go to sleep and I would wake up and I would think, Oh God, I have to change that one word. And I would, you know, like write down a note on my phone 
to myself, change that word to this word. Um, and it is in the chapter on Ode on Melancholy. And I should say, just to contextualize the passage, that um, the first line that I'm going to, which I will read, the first line refers back to um, a line very early in of the chapter, and it's a line that comes from Doris Lessing. And um, Doris Lessing is describing in her book, Memoirs of a Survivor, the experience of having someone look at her with the expert assessment of possibilities by a prisoner observing a new jailer, which is a, just a completely mind-blowing line. And so I, I have used that line to describe a similar experience of having somebody look at me with the expert assessment of possibilities of a prisoner observing a new jailer. So the passage that I revised over and over and over again begins by referring back to, to that line and, and to that experience. Once the jailer, I'm now the object of an unflinching rhetoric of criminalization. Everything I do is wrong. It comes easily to me to ask for forgiveness, but even though I really do mean it and really do want it, I'm also getting tired of this nonsense. If love is anything not laid waste by this world, it is free. Mine is. Beneath all uncertainties, it is sacred in the way of a riot, like the very idea of song. It has to be dragged kicking and screaming, even from the scene of its final insult, for which I too am responsible, not least because I greet with furious exultation the moment it all goes to pieces and I abandon hope and us. From various corners, I hear I have been characteristically insensible or clueless, as well as hypocritical, beguiling, and cruel. No one seems convinced of what I know to be true about my love, that it was not wanted for what it was but for the pain it could guarantee. So one of the things that was really, really tricky about writing that passage and about writing that chapter and really about writing the whole book is, you know, I say in the introduction that some of the chapters, particularly the three in the middle of the book, are, you know, pretty explicitly engaged with um, the story of a relationship or, you know, maybe a better word would be like an intimacy that I was in. And the whole book is really, but the three chapters in the middle are, are really about that. And it was really, really important to me to write about that story or to write that story in a way that didn't suggest any kind of closure in a way that didn't put any blame anywhere, you know, like not on me and not on the other person that was just like a blame free account. And it was lastly, I would say really, really important for me to find a way to write about my own failings in a way that didn't exonerate me. And that also wasn't, um, melodramatic and therefore like exonerating me in another way you know so basically what I'm saying is I wanted to write about myself in a way that didn't make excuses for myself and that was very very hard and so that's why at the end of the passage and I hadn't put this in originally it came this was actually a very late revision I brought in that stuff about you know having been told that I had been hypocritical and beguiling and cruel you know I wanted to have and, and all that's true you know all that stuff <laughs> you know, was said to me, has been said to me, you know, including, um, you know, by people who I, I think, you know, really like me and, and care about me and, you know, think I'm like an okay person or whatever, like my, you know, some dear friends. Um, 
I really wanted to put that in there because I really wanted to, to give myself a hard, a bit of a hard time, you know? And I think that that is hard to do as a writer in a way that, again, doesn't tip over into a kind of, you know, performative self-loathing, like, oh, I'm so bad and I deserve everything I get. And, you know, God, like, how could I even bear to live with myself? Like, I didn't want to do that. You know, I, um, I wanted to find a way to talk about the ways in which I, like everyone else, can be difficult. And also to describe, you know, the ways in which I was also in a difficult situation that wasn't just about my difficulty. (laughs) And that was really, really hard, you know, and I wanted so badly to just get it right. And I felt like that was not just a, a writer's obligation, but also a kind of ethical obligation to the truth of the situation. I wanted to, to be faithful to the truth of the situation as I understood it. And that was just, it was really difficult. You know, it was really hard. I'm not, I'm still not totally satisfied with that passage, but it's so, but I can, I guess I can kind of, I mean, I guess I have to live with it. I don't have a choice. Where do you write? Lots of different places. So I'm a very, or I was before COVID, I was a very mobile writer. So I will sometimes write in my office on campus. I'll sometimes write at the, you know, public library. I'll write in, um, you know, like at the kitchen table, sometimes in bed. I'm all over the place. I, I don't really have a particular place that I, I prefer to write. Again, pre-pandemic, I actually really love writing while uh, traveling, so either on planes or trains. And I started this book on a plane. I started this book on a flight from London back to Los Angeles, where I live. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Um, well, you know, this too has sort of changed. You know, I used to, my favorite thing to do is if I'm done writing for the day is to go for a run just because it helps me, you know, be oriented towards something different. It helps me to be physical. I mean, I thought me writing is actually quite physical experience, but it helps to be physical in a different way. It helps to push myself to a point of exhaustion so that I can't obsess about, you know, the sentence that I just wrote and the ways that it's not right. Although, as you know, from, you know, my answer to the last question, I'll find a way to obsess about it anyway. So I love to run. I really, really love to run. Um, but I have two kids. So I have a, a five-year-old and I have a, a six-month-old. So, you know, basically, whether by choice or not, the thing that I do to get away from writing is just to play with my kids, which is, a, you know, which is a wonderful thing to do to get out of your own head as well. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? It really depends. Um, You know, it took me a long time to get used to showing my work to other people because when I was in graduate school, there was not a culture of sharing work. And I always wanted to share work and I always wanted to like be in reading groups with people that um, even though I was in a reading group, we didn't really share any writing. So I love sharing writing and I love reading other people's rough drafts and, and just thinking through the really messy parts of an argument or, you know, with anybody. Um, so there are a few people, um, this book, the Keats book in particular, I had a, a little, um, roster of readers from whom I wanted different things. So, um, two graduate students at UCLA, Dandy Mang and Jesslyn Wittell, I showed it to them very, very early and they were generous enough to read it for me and to give me encouragement and, you know, just to let me know I was on the right track. I think I kind of just wanted a gut check from those two because I, because I trust their guts. 
And um, my friend Anthony Madrid, who is a poet and a critic and just a wonderful writer and a really hilarious human being, I sent it to him because I knew that he would hold me to a very, very high standard. So the, the thing I said in, in response to the question about something that I revised over and over again, um, you know, I, again, I wanted to do right by the situation that I was in, by the um, kind of emotional life of that situation. And I didn't want to let myself off the hook. And I knew that Anthony would absolutely not let me off the hook. He's a very, very, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Just like a strenuous moral thinker. So he would read it and he would send me notes via email in extremely large font, you know, like 35 point font saying, you know, you're a terrible person. You know, he would sort of say that kind of stuff, like half seriously, but definitely half of it was serious. And so, you know, I had Anthony to really keep me on my toes and I'm really grateful for that. And then I, you know, I showed it to my best friend. I showed it to a few other people and I got a lot of feedback on, on this Keats book. And I was so grateful to have that feedback and it wouldn't, the book would not have been written without those sort of voices chiming in and, and pulling it into shape. How have you dealt with rejection? You know, I'm, I, I'm really lucky in that I'm employed as a, as a professor, as a teacher. And so I don't have, I don't have to write to Ms. I don't make my income through writing. You know, I make my income through teaching. So I don't have to, you know, worry that if somebody doesn't accept, you know, something of mine that, you know, like I, I won't be able to pay my rent, you know, so I'm incredibly privileged that way. But I would say that it's something that Lauren Berlant taught me. Again, my aforementioned advisor, my friend, my mentor, Lauren once said to me, always hear the non-hostile version of the statement. <laughs> and I find that really, really useful, you know, so even when someone, you know, hates what you're doing or, or writes a nasty email writes and you know, uh, kind of unfair evaluation or any, you know, anytime or asks a question, you give a talk and somebody just asks a really antagonistic and mean, petty, whatever question. I really believe in the power of, of trying to hear the non-hostile version of whatever it is that's being thrown at you. And I think that not just because it, it makes you smarter, you know, it makes you smarter to think outside the threat to your own ego that you might experience in moments like that, you know? Um, but it also, it, it, it's more fun, you know? It's more fun to be curious about what somebody means when they hate your work or, you know, when somebody says that, you know, you're, you're stupid or uninteresting or whatever, you know? So I guess the answer is I, I deal with rejection by just trying to be curious about it and trying to learn something from it and and trying to you know, help myself change for the better in response to it. Now, some stuff you also have to know just to like completely write off, you know, some stuff is not helpful, but Lauren was such a great one for making the world more interesting, making life more interesting. And so that's, that's my version of, of trying to continue in the vein of what she taught me. And what is your favorite word? Yes. I love saying it. I love hearing it. I love I love it. It's perfect perfect word, perfect meaning. Yes. Thank you so much for your time. I'm so appreciative. Oh, thank you. This was so fun. 
If you like today's show with Anahid Nirsesian, author of Keats's Odes, A Lover's Discourse, check out my interview with Rachel Kushner. We talked about her novel, The Flamethrowers, the business of art, writing fiction versus essays, and riding a motorcycle as fast as she could. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 350 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping the show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Evie Wilde, Lan Samantha Chang, Thritti Umrigar, and Jacqueline Michard. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.